Cox Automotive has been at the frontier of digitizing the automotive space with popular products such as AutoTrader, Kelly Blue Book, and DealerTrack. To deliver these products, the company manages large quantities of data and diverse engineering teams. Scaling its operations required an engineering transformation of the company. Chris Dillon is the VP of Architecture and Engineering Enablement at Cox Automotive. He joins the podcast to talk about how the company accomplished this transformation. This episode is hosted by Lee Acheson. Lee Acheson is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His best-selling book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business. Listen at mdb.fm. Follow Lee at softwarearchitectureinsights.com and see all his content at leeatchison.com. Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Lee. Happy to be here. Great. Thank you. So, you know, Cox Automotive is, you know, it's a, in a very well-defined industry vertical, right? You know, it's an automotive industry. It's a very well-defined vertical. What's interesting going on in automotive right now? Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll get us started there. I mean, there's there's three different places that we play, and I'll just comment on each of them. Um, first is on the retail side, things that you and I experience as car drivers and then car shoppers. Uh, there are new business models that are emerging and being experimented with. Maybe the most uh, you know common is Tesla going direct to consumer with e-commerce and and the ability to purchase a vehicle online end to end and have it you know delivered to you or delivered to a, a store that's not a franchise it's a it's a it's a store instead more that apple kind of model so that direct to consumer you have carvana uh playing with and, and other dealers like that playing with the same types of ideas in the used car space of selling vehicles online all the way through the transaction um, then there's different kinds of subscription kind of ownership models that are being experimented with maybe you don't buy a vehicle or even lease a vehicle, but you pay for uh, you know a vehicle as a service. So Audi and Porsche are are experimenting with that. That's on the retail side. Um, on the wholesale side of the business, this is where dealers um, sell vehicles to one another uh, to you know populate their used uh, lots. For example, there's been a dramatic shift over the last few years, really driven by the pandemic. Until just a few years ago. Believe it or not, most of the vehicles that you would find at a used car dealership were purchased at auction with a live auctioneer calling and, and a, a uh, you know, used vehicle manager went and made those purchases in person. Um, we've seen a dramatic digitization or shift to the digital channels. The digital channels were there. We've seen a dramatic adoption of those channels. And those have created other kinds of challenges that maybe we can get into that we're trying to apply you know, technology to. And then the third area is... Um, uh, in the industry, we call it the ACES future. It's ACES stands for autonomous, connected, electric, and shared. These, this is the transformation in uh, you know vehicles and transportation over the next twenty years that people are anticipating. And there's a lot going on there as well. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you know the the industry itself is changing a lot, and so Cox Automotive has to change to go along with that, which is familiar territory for a lot of our listeners because they're 
lots of industries have gone through changes either because of the pandemic or because of other industry changes. So, you know, given that this is an industry in transformation, what is the vision of Cox Automotive? Yeah, well, I think I'll answer that by maybe backing up a little bit in terms of our our history. So, we grew both organically and through a set of kind of strategic acquisitions to bring together capabilities that power kind of that end-to-end, the end-to-end life cycle of the vehicle. So you mentioned some of those shopper journeys at the top around Auto Trader and Kelly Blue Book. Those are the places that uh, you, know, you and I would interact with, with Cox Automotive. On the other side of that transaction or the other side of that pane of glass from the consumer shopper is uh, you know a team at a dealership who are managing their dealership or a dealership group and um, and we're providing a set of software a software suite, an integrated software suite into that dealership that powers it. And when we acquired the various products and so forth and pulled them together, it was a it was not an integrated, you know, uh, software set for sure. It was it was a set of silos, right? You mean all your acquisitions weren't doing things the exact same way? S- surprise, right? Exactly. There there were well certainly different practices and so forth. Um, so we're building that integrated set of software to power the dealership and the retailer and help the dealer um, transform into that digital kind of future that we're we're talking about, where a lot more of the transactions will be um, will be digitized. A lot more of the transac the the um, the transaction will be digitized, you know, end to end. So that's you know that's one area of you know the the vision on the wholesale side. I would say actually it's about the convergence of the wholesale and retail marketplaces over time. That's something that we're starting to see where, uh, you know, is it really any different to take a, a vehicle to a wholesale channel versus to also merchandise that vehicle in various retail channels? And so um, driving sort of disruption and, and change into that part of the market is, uh, is also a part, of our, a part of our vision long-term and our aspiration. So you're... Your vision's really all about integration and digitalization. Really, is what it boils down to. Is you're 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 trying you're digitalizing parts of the industry which are not yet digital but are moving digital, but also you got all of these separate disjoint businesses that you've come come upon either by my my by merging or acquisitions, et cetera. And now you have to integrate all those together into some common framework then. Yeah, that's right. And I would say also we're, we're enabling our customers, um, the dealers and the dealer groups to transform their businesses, right? So it's, it's powering their digital transformation as well. So let's talk about the technology involved in doing that. So you've, you've, um, you know, integration and digitalization, um, with, with your you're with both a consumer and a business-based customer in mind. Well, what are the parts of the, the the technical aspect of your architecture that's that you're changing, that you're growing, that you're what are you doing to to address these needs within your product architecture itself? Yeah, I, I'll tell you where we are at our current point of the journey, and then we may want to back up because there was sort of a journey to get there. And um, what we're really focused on today is uh, composability. It's the composability, you know, it's sort of the, the notion that we're, instead of building these stove fi- stovepiped products um, that don't 
integrate well with one another. We're extracting kind of the core capabilities and uh, and rendering them either as as APIs, as sets of um, uh, embeddable and composable UIs, and then stitching those products uh, or new experiences together. That's really our vision. Is a set of it's a platform for the industry of digital building blocks that can be stitched together and reconfigured in different ways. Um, so that's that's a major part of our you know focus now. Now we can only really pursue that vision at this point because of a lot of the underlying transformation work that we've done over the past five or six years. Uh, I mentioned that we had grown through acquisition. Six years ago, if you had looked at us, we were a collection of uh, 400 scrum teams, if you could count them as scrum teams, because we didn't all operate the same way, right? We used just dozens of different technology stacks and uh, had different measures for what good engineering looked like. Um, we had different words we used for roles and responsibilities. There's just a tremendous amount of friction. So a lot of the transformation to get to where we are today has been, is, you know, is, is behind us, but it's been about creating consistency in our delivery model, our operating model, our underlying engineering platform and practices. So that's been, you know, the journey that we've been on. So a lot of companies, yeah, I, I'm working with lots of companies that are do, going through that transformation now. I, you know, you're also, I've, I've talked to companies who have tried making the transition and have had various levels of success with it, you know, meaning anywhere from a decent success to no success at all and have backed off from it. So you've been successful at that transformation. Well, what is it that made you successful? What did you do that allowed you to to perform that transformation that you occurred over the last six years? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there it came in multiple steps. Um, and at every step, there was sort of a little bit more, um, you know, that we gained. I, I think this, the starting point for us was about getting to a common just delivery model. And um, uh, for us, that was, again, we had hundreds of scrum teams, lots of different ways. We looked at different options for how to sort of bring them together so that they could operate as kind of one unit and build integrated products together. And we decided to go with sort of a lightweight version of scaled agile framework. So safe was our, um, uh, if, you know, if listeners are familiar with that, it's a little bit heavy. We didn't use all of the tools and techniques in, um, in scaled agile, but what it did do is give us a common kind of uh, structure, set of roles and responsibilities, a set of cadences and ceremonies that every one of our engineering teams held in common. Um, and, uh, and so that was like a starting point, just getting a, an operating model that worked for us. The, the next part for us in the journey was really about making some technology choices. And, you know, I think with these, it's always about how do you balance the the needs of an enterprise with the desire for having those autonomous, you know, two pizza teams, right? So you, you want to have a, a two pizza team that are unencumbered and can really pursue the needs that their customer has, but you have needs from the enterprise, like, you know, security and, and reliability. And we just, we need to give them the right set of guardrails. Schedules. Yeah. Schedules. Exactly. Dependencies internally. 
Um, so we didn't have teams that could just deliver on their own anymore. Now we have to deliver in an integrated kind of way. That's what the market's expecting. Um, and that's that was sort of our opportunity to drive to drive the kind of transformation we wanted to drive. So um, so we looked at a lot of different options from a technology perspective, uh, sort of from like highly opinionated types of platforms like Pivotal to you know, the various cloud platforms. We decided to go with AWS and we, saw, we sort of did an all in with AWS where we got our CFO and our executive suite aligned on that step of the journey um, with you know full buy-in and alignment and sort of committed ourselves to exiting 50 data centers, believe it or not, we were running in 50 different data centers and moving a lot of those workloads in AWS. And as we did, we used, you know, the, the 4R or SNR, you know, type of framework that you mentioned before. And each one of the workloads sort of had a different profile and, and plan for how it was going to move you know, up into the cloud. So you've moved all your workloads to AWS now. You, do you, does that mean your data centers are gone or are you almost gone or are you in the process? Uh, we're we're down to we're down to a very small set down to a very small set of strategic cool. data centers. Um, we've moved everything that we started out with the intent to move. We'll say it that way. So you know there was kind of a there was a business case and there was a plan and there was a you know financial model and, and so forth that we that we landed on and it made certain assumptions about which ones we would move and how we would rearchitect them and and so forth. And yeah, we finished that that journey. Now there's still stuff that we're lifting up because there's benefit, but it wasn't necessarily in the original, you know, in the original case for us. Did you do a lot of lift and shift into the cloud or did you actually transformation as you migrated? There was, we sort of did all, all of the things, um, for sure. In most cases we would lift up into the cloud and then, um, iterate from there to, to decompose and, and drive it towards a more, you know, cloud native architecture. Now, in some cases we couldn't do that because there was, uh, you know, a component, a legacy piece that was just, it wasn't going to operate in the cloud successfully or wasn't going to operate in the cloud in a cost effective, you know, kind of manner. And so we had to re-architect that piece as we moved. Um, so we, you know, we, we did each, you know, each of the different ways we definitely had an example of it. Um, what we've, uh, now that we're all, for the most part, you know, operating in the cloud, there's, is really about optimizing in the cloud. And for us, that's, that's a couple things. One is just cost optimization, you know, using the fact that you can, um, engineer your way into better cost profiles is kind of an exciting and interesting engineering challenge that you don't have in an on-prem type of world. You can get real time, you know, positive feedback and cause for celebration of those kind of things. How effective were you at managing your costs as you moved to the cloud? Was was the moving to the cloud an acceptance that it was going to be more expensive, but yet um, better managed because you didn't have to build deal with the data centers and all the other advantages that come with, uh, with, with cloud-centric? Or um, were you able to construct things in such a way that you're actually cost effective in the cloud and perhaps even uh, cost savings in the cloud? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that a couple of ways. So um, uh, one is that certainly as a percentage of um, revenue, 
which is one way to think about this, our overall hosting costs have remained flat as we've shifted, have remained flat or have improved as we've shifted. And that's in aggregate across the entire, you know, the entire fleet. Um, and that's something that's something we're proud of because there are some lump there for sure. There's definitely, you take something up into the cloud and you know that you're going to have a, an optimization journey. Um, and we, especially with our later workloads more recently, like in the last year or so, we really were smart about how we modeled that. We knew when we get this up there, you know, it's going to be running it. It's going to be running hot, a cost perspective. And we know the changes that we're going to be able to make once we get it there to optimize those costs. And then we've got a pretty good, um, well, I'll say like a, a rigorous kind of view of our AWS resources and the costs that they're generating and ways of surfacing to our teams on a monthly basis, what we see as you know cost opportunities and that sort of thing. That comes from our, we have a central kind of cloud business office that provides that kind of visibility to our teams. And then it's a it's an engineering challenge, turns it into an engineering challenge for them. I was, I was gonna say, so you've, you've optimized yourself into the realm where the cloud hasn't been a cost disadvantage. And in fact, you're, you're at least um, cost neutral, if not cost advantageous at this point. Yeah, I would say that. And, and the, another thing I would point out is, um, so for example, during the pandemic, uh, that was an interesting test for us because I, I mentioned a big part of our business is um, these auctions, these B2B auctions, which are physical facilities where people come and they're auctioneers and you know, you're bidding on vehicles in the lanes, as well as uh, digital bidders uh, who, are, who are participating in the in-lane traffic, but digitally, which has a whole set of technology challenges you could imagine. But, but you know, when... Um, when the lockdown happened, we shut all of those down and we actually watched, we could see it in our, the elasticity in our cost um, with AWS. And it was a great story to be able to tell to our executive team, um, you know, the return on the investment of moving these things into AWS. The other thing is, and this is something that I think it's lost and it's kind of hard to model, is you might be paying similar dollars uh, or maybe just a little bit more for the cloud resources, but you're a much more you're in a much more resilient posture. Um, so we've got the redundancy, or if we're using you know the right set of services for AWS to power this workload, we're in a much better posture, more secure, more reliable posture. So you're not always paying for the same thing, right? Right. Yeah. It's really hard to you know we talk about cost optimizations to realize that you're not comparing apples to apples, you're comparing apples to oranges because what you end up with is a system that is more resilient because, you know, if a server goes bad, it's easy to replace it. It's easy to change things up much easier than in your own data center. And that's hard to quantify when it comes to the cost calculations. But one of the things you can quantify are things like the reduced need for hot standbys and things like that for, you know, for either for resiliency or for scaling. And so you're you're able to, you're, you've built things in such a way so that you can avoid the hot standby problem of, of your own data centers and only launch new resources when you actually need them. Is that, is that correct in your new architecture? Absolutely. In, in an ideal world, that's the way you would do it, for sure. Yeah. But, and that is the way that you're working towards doing it or doing it right now? Yeah, it is. I mean, 
it's it's been a um it's been a journey from a resiliency perspective uh in fact this is something that um about two years ago we started on two and a half years ago we started on a set of resiliency investments every you know every set of workloads has its own you know unique kind of requirements from a resiliency perspective and so is the right model to be you know active active in multiple regions or to be sort of active with you know a, a passive ability to to fail over and you always have some sort of legacy in your architecture that you're also having to work through right we don't we don't get to rebuild everything in a you know highly cloud native way so that we've got all of the options on the table so it does it does require some it always becomes a business decision of what you rewrite, what you change, what you update, and whether not everything is worthwhile to put that level of redundancy in or that level of uh, of um, of effort into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the tools we use to talk to our business about that is um, the notion of resiliency tiers. Right? Is it's, there's a there's a cost to perfection, as we like to say, and uh, so you know we could. We could design to achieve a level of resiliency, but it will cost. And let's talk about those trade-offs and what does the product really require? Yeah, the business will always say, well, I want mine to be diamond, but until you turn that into business terms um, and what is what is the cost of, uh, you know, of that level of resiliency. So that's been a tool that we've definitely used. Donald's burger may be okay. Exactly. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'd... One of the things I talk about in my book is service tiers, which is a little bit different take, but I like the idea of resiliency tiers. What what the service tiers are are the idea of the the importance to the availability of various components within your system. There's some parts of your system which are much more important than other parts of your system. A, a backend reporting logging system is has a different level of res, of uh, availability requirements than your consumer login front-end system. You know, there, there's, there's variations there. So I talk about service tiers to describe that and the interconnection between them. Resiliency tiers sounds like something that's similar to that, but for a slightly different purpose. I think it's, I think it's similar to what you're, what you, you know, you're laying out there, Lee. I, you know, one of the ways that we use it, for example, um, not too long ago, it's public information. Uh, AWS had a uh, you know, major service disruption in um, one of their regions. And we we were able to, of course, we had some impact from that. Um, and we've been in the process of reflecting on, okay, what, what really happened? Uh, what was the impact to our end customers? And did our resiliency tier framework do what we wanted it to, which is to say the things that we had engineered to provide what we call a diamond level or a platinum level of performance, did they exhibit, you know, the the fault tolerance that they needed to, the resiliency that can be expected, um, and uh, and then was that good enough for the business? Right? Was were our customers um, impacted in the way that we had expected them to be, or not impacted in the way that we expected them to be? And so, yeah, there were a number of things that are you know, like a silver tier engineered workload. And they had many minutes of, uh, you know, of, of offline time, but it didn't result in a customer impact. And that's why it was a silver tier and not a platinum tier, you know, type of workload. So that was success, right? That was, 
uh, that was a good thing. So we're we're increasingly trying to get to that world where we're measuring against the expectation that we've placed on it, and the expectation is based on its role in the enterprise or in our customers' workflows or you know that kind of thing. Exactly what you talked about. So they may be they may be very similar, and we just use the word resiliency tier um, because it's the mindset we're trying to drive. Cool, great. You know, the sort of transformation you've gone through is not only a technology transformation, but it's also an engineering culture transformation. Now, I, I know you made heavy use of the well-architected framework, the AWS well-architected framework. And I think you told me at one point in time that that's part of what helped you with the cultural transformation. Could you talk about that some more and talk about that for listeners? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. The cultural transformation has been really important. I like to think about it as when you drive a cultural change, there's a combination of like celebrations and expectations, right? And you, you could think of that as like carrots and sticks, right? Celebrations and expectations may be a, a, a better way to describe it. But um, talk about celebrations, it's things like um, what you what you talk about, what you reward. If we're trying to drive cost efficiency, you know, we and and a team has had a huge success. We talk about that. On the expectation side, one tool we've used is um, like you said, AWS, uh, the well architected framework. And maybe for listeners who aren't aware, that's a set of um, six pillars. There's six pillars in the framework, and the, each one of them is like a set of principles and best practices for designing and building and running, you know, well-architected, well-engineered workloads, um, whether in the cloud or on-prem. Um, they can really apply either place. So um, and when, it, when we started using it, it was like a set of PDFs that AWS, you know, published, and it's a set of yes or no questions. Since then, we've actually partnered a lot with AWS on how they've... Um, it, you know, elaborated the framework. Now it's a tool that teams can go into, and this is how it works in our environment now today. Teams can go in, they're addressing a particular set of resources or accounts, and um, and they can go through kind of a yes or no question survey about their security practices and reliability practices and operational excellence practices and so forth. And, uh, and it captures the information we scrape it out through an API and load it into Snowflake, and we bring other dimensions in, like cost efficiency stuff from from other tools, and marry it up with our, um, you know, our agile team structure. So the teams can go and look at, okay, how am I doing against all of these expectations in well architected, and where do I need to invest? You know, am I am I good on security, but but light on performance efficiency, and I need to invest there. The other thing it's done for us is it it's become kind of a language that we share with our business partners to talk about like technical debt and not just use, I mean, the fastest way you can get a business partner's eyes to glaze over, right, is to talk about in terms of technical debt. But things like, you know, the reliability of the service or our operational effectiveness, um, you know, in, in delivering software, these are words that the business uses all the time, you know, in, in their context. So we use that. It's been a really powerful, you know, way of setting a set of expectations, having a set of objective measures, allowing it to, um, you know, be an e 
ease certain conversations that you need to have with product or business partners. Um, so that's been that's been our journey with that that you were asking about. Well, yeah, yeah. The the term technical debt is one of those overloaded terms that uh, um, has a lot of of inconsistent meanings, unfortunately. But it, it it's a great premise, and it does great um, and used correct correctly used reasonably, I should say. It it can be very helpful for an organization to uh, determine what it needs to do, as well as its health as well as communicate that to other people. But the problem is there's no good definition. One of the things I've always thought about, this is way off topic, I'm sure, but one of the things I've always thought about is, is technical debt, is the term technical debt hindering our ability to use technical debt as a tool of communication? And and, and I think I think it, the answer is probably. We'll, we, I think the jury's still out. And I'm wondering if there's some sort of term around the word complexity rather than technical debt that might be better suited for the communication of what we're trying to accomplish to non-technical individuals um, on the health of our systems. And anyway, that's just kind of as an aside. I'd love to hear your comments on that, but uh, but uh, if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, I think that um, the, the thing about technical debt, I guess, is a term... Um, and even just the way that you have conversations about it with business partners is that you know they're ne- they're not technologists they're not engineers they just expect us to build it right the first time you know kind of right and and it just make it work um, and so it can at times it can be frustrating uh, unless you sort of build the build lay the groundwork for having a conversation and say no wait a minute these are all business decisions they're all business decisions. If we cut a corner now to deliver sooner, we're, you know, and using that traditional set of words, we're taking on technical debt, it has to be paid back. And um, the more that we can, I think, express those in in business terms with the business, the better off we'll be. Um, so I don't know. I don't know whether I, I don't, I don't know if I would uh, necessarily say like complexity is a better metaphor. Um, but I think that it's it's the way that we serve our our business partners is by like you know I can't teach you everything about technology, so I'll take on the posture of talking about our situation in business terms or like put 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 the burden on us to talk about it in those terms. And like I said, Well Architect has just been a a tool for us that that helps in those conversations. I'll say another thing that's been valuable for us is the fact that it is a third party tool um you know we we looked at different ways of kind of measuring ourselves and benchmarking and so forth and and um you know internal spins on things but the ability to say hey this is this is the way AWS recommends that we evaluate and um and score the health of our engineered workloads is you know that's that's been that gets traction internally for sure. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the well-architected framework and what it can accomplish for, for organizations really like yours that really em- completely embrace that model. And that, that's the whole key with it is you have to embrace the model in order to see the value. It's so easy to look at the framework and say, you know, well, there's a lot of stuff here. I don't know whether it's really that important or not, but if once you realize it is, <laughs> then it's, 
it's a great framework for for dealing with it. One thing we're trying to do now is really automate um, through instrumentation and and so forth the our understanding of the answers to those questions. So some of them you have to make a little bit more precise, um, but as you do that, or put some more expectations around how you will like. For example, if there's an expectation that you have a uh, you know monitoring available for workload, right? Well, if we can put a little bit more guardrails around that and say, this is the specific way that you need to set up your monitor and here's how you need to tag the monitor so that we can see it, then we can answer this question for you. And um, so we've kind of the next iteration or maybe a a deeper version of well-architected, which is more appropriate at sort of a workload or group of workloads, kind of the product level. At a component level, we've started using uh, tool that we call PRR performance or sorry production readiness review. I think we may have take stolen that you know acronym from Google or somebody. But the the PRR we're trying to automate, and it is a set of questions. Some of them are similar to what we ask in Well Architected, and so we'll you know we won't ask those anymore because we'll have detailed data on the ground. But we want to be able to in the long term um, through observability of the components that are out there know their operational health or their readiness for production, you know, looking at them in a, in a non-prod environment. So that's where we're headed, where we're still on that journey for sure. So let's, let's end by going back to one of the first things we, we, we brought up that we really didn't get into a lot yet, but I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, we, we talked about how your industry is changing, automotive industry is changing faster than many or most other industries, it seems like. You know, you're, the, the, the rate at which the industry is electrifying is incredible. The uh, rate at which it's accepting AI and the use of AI as a technology to change the way the industry works. I'm not talking just driverless cars here. I'm talking lots of other uses for AI. Um, has, has been really dramatic. Um, and so that's, that has to have an effect on your business. Your industry is modernizing. Your business has to modernize to keep up with it or lead it. You know, either you either follow, you don't follow or you lead. And, and I'm assuming you want to be a leader in that. How is that affecting your business? And what do you see the real direction of the industry going? Yeah. Um, well, that is a that is a big question. So, first of all, absolutely, we want to we want to lead it. We want to drive you know the transformation. Um, for us specifically, I think you're asking about you know where does where do technologies like uh, you know AI and those advances fit in, and how are they going to really disrupt? Um, I mentioned before that in the wholesale space just a few years ago people would come to come to lanes and they would want to touch and see the vehicles and they would bid with live auctioneers you know that kind of thing and it still happens um and and we're we're wanting to see more digitization of that space but the key problem that we have in that space is and sort of a barrier to digitization is having a transparent understanding of the condition of the vehicle that you're bidding on. 
these aren't new vehicles. These are, you know, used vehicles. Everyone is, it's, is a special snowflake because it has a history. You know, it, it may have different kinds of damage that isn't necessarily, you know, visible from a screen if you're, you know, bidding in that context. So um, to drive uh, transparency into that, we've actually invested, been investing for a number of years and have patents and so forth on um, advanced kind of imagery capability. We call them fixed imaging tunnels. And what you could imagine is you take a vehicle, you drive it through this tunnel that has lighting and uh, camera arrays that take a bunch of high resolution uh, images. They then wrap those images onto a 3D model of the vehicle. And, uh, and then through computer vision and machine learning, they identify damage to the vehicle, either cosmetic damage, scratches and dings and that kind of thing. Um, we also have undercarriage imaging and they can detect where there might be leaks or other kinds of repairs that have been done and so forth. And then translating that into a, uh, a condition report with estimates on uh, you know, the, the cost of the repairs. That's, that's one of the visions that we have that will drive just dramatic amount of um, you know, transparency into the market, makes the market more liquid, liquid. And we see applications for that kind of technology, not just in wholesale marketplace setting, but certainly in consumer type of settings um, and, uh, and, and other settings as well. So that's been one of the, one of the major areas that we're using. We're driving investment and uh, it's, it's really cool stuff. An exciting space, definitely. Absolutely. Chris Dillon is the VP of Architecture and Engineering Enablement at Cox Automotive, and he's been my guest today. Chris, thank you for joining me on Software Engineering Daily. Lee, thanks a lot. Appreciate it.